Gaming fraud here in the state of Nevada encompasses a wide array of activities under NRS 465.070. This can range from using insider information to make a sports wager, to tampering with a slot machine, to using an unlawful sliding technique when rolling dice at a craps table, to moving chips around uh, after the action is started in a blackjack game. Most of the activities in the casino are on film because you've got cameras everywhere. So it's very common if we have an allegation of unlawful play at a table that we'll have the video where we can see the activity that the casino may be alleging was fraudulent. However, a lot of the activities that give rise to gambling fraud uh, prosecutions involve activities that can't be seen on the casino's cameras. And you don't, uh, you don't necessarily have to be the one playing in order to be charged and prosecuted for gambling fraud. If you provide information that somebody else could use to commit a fraud against the casino, then you could be charged with gaming fraud as an accomplice. A lot of people don't realize that cheating in a casino can subject you to criminal penalties. They might think that they're merely outsmarting the casino. But the casino, if they catch you cheating, will will often do more than simply 86 you and tell you never to come back. They may turn you over to law enforcement. They may pull the video of the events that gave rise to the allegation and you may find yourself in court facing criminal charges. Although getting a criminal record seal in Nevada is a positive thing that expands one's employment and housing opportunities, it cannot keep a non-citizen from getting deported. ICE has access to an immigrant's criminal records even if they have been sealed. However, immigrants who have been convicted of deportable offenses might still be able to avoid removal through such post-conviction relief measures as 1. A motion to withdraw a plea 2. A motion for a new trial 3. A writ of habeas corpus and 4. A 2255 motion in federal cases Common grounds for post-conviction relief include ineffective assistance of counsel prosecutorial misconduct, new evidence, or a violation of constitutional rights. It is much easier to prevent a guilty verdict than to overcome one. Therefore, any immigrant facing deportable criminal charges is advised to retain experienced counsel right away in an attempt to get the charges dismissed or reduced to non-deportable offenses. And once the criminal case is resolved, then the immigrant can pursue sealing the case 
in an effort to increase their job and housing prospects in the United States. If you are facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. At the Las Vegas Defense Group, we have criminal and immigration attorneys so that we can advise you on how to best resolve your criminal case and avoid immigration consequences. And go move their stuff, bring it back to you. They make them pay a deposit, they run it real nice. You can leave it at Home Depot. I leave mine's at Home Depot in a parking lot. Yo, you know what? You know, some people, they'll spend, you know, $100,000, dollars on, on an investment property that's not going to give you three fifty a week. No, it's not. But you're going to buy a two, $3,000 car. Turn them cars into real estate, baby. Better than real estate. And I was just telling, I was like, I ain't going to lie. Do you ever get an economy car and sit on it and nobody wants it? Haven't. I mean, I, I, like, like a lot of my mentees used to ask me, like, what's the best car to get? I'd be like, all of them going to go. You just want to do the, when it comes to economies, you want to do the ones that never really break down. Like? Like Toyotas. Come on, when you seen a Toyota broke down on the side of the street? Come on, bro. Them things last forever. Especially a Prius. And they good on gas. You fill it up with $20, that thing gets you all week. You know what I mean? So I just look for Toyota Priuses. Man, it's just super Hyundai convenient, Sonatas. man. Because it's, I just put it on my insurance. Go ahead and drive it. Something happens. You don't, you don't care. Don't you could care, care less. You know what I mean? And then you can. I still put full coverage on all of mine. Just to take a little baby check that I'm going to get. Mm. But it don't matter to me. Because I already know. I know. Like if, it, if in the rare occasion that it. Before I make my money back. It crashes or something like that, which it doesn't. But if it were to, it's not a big deal. I only spent two thousand. Like for, I'm not saying just you have two thousand. I'm talking about I use my finance cars yeah. to get me up to where I was making enough money to go and buy cars cash, and then I dud it. I dud it over and over and over to where I got so many economy cars. They're gonna keep going and going and going. Now, when they happen to do break down or something like that, I get them fixed, and then I keep them going. And if I if they done for. I already made my money back times tw- 10 already. Yeah. And it's not a big deal to me. So I just, you know, sell it to the scrap cars, get money off from the scrap people, sell it mm. to them, then go get another one. Like it's not even a big deal because there's so many of those cars. Y'all got to understand that they make a, a, a new model of every car every single year. Y'all know how many cars out here? Y'all know how many people go get something on uh, Labor Day, on a Labor Day sales and they can't handle it no more. They want to give it away. Mm-hmm. Let me give y'all a couple games. I'm going to give y'all a couple games before we get out for this thing. So you're talking joint ventures. You got people that can't handle their card notes no more. You know a way to make money with it. You take over that payment. You get the money with it. Or you can offer your people who don't know how to make money for themselves. Give them money every month to use their credit. Get a finance car. So you're helping them in two ways. You're getting yourself money and you're helping your people who don't know how to make money and giving them solid money. That's a joint venture. Learn how to solve problems. If you start learn how to solve problems in this game, you will never be broke because it's so many people that need cars for stuff, different reasons. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll be getting slingshots. You'll be like, damn, why would I need a slingshot? Because you can drive it for yourself and then you can make money on it hourly. Mm. Why don't run out a, a slingshot for the day? Run it out by the hour. 100 an hour going to make you a killing. Get three of them. They're going to get them three at the same time, I promise you. It's so many plays. It's like, get you trucks, use fetch truck. You know how many people need trucks for moving? If you that guy who just give it to them, I don't care if you beat it up a little bit. Now you're damn about this truck. 
move your stuff. These dudes gonna rent them every damn day. <laughs> Y'all know how good these trucks. I'll be like, yo, I'll be so surprised. I'll be like, I was like, yeah, just you can you can ding it up a little bit. I'm not gonna make you pay if you ding up the back or uh, they'd be like, bro, I'm taking us to work every day. Y'all know how much money I make off these trucks, man. Come on, man, don't start. Don't get me started. So solve problems, baby. And then you'll you'll go a long way. Help your people, do the joint venture method, mm-hmm. broker deals with other people who who are in the rental car space, maybe they might not be as good as you in marketing. Maybe they might not have the platform that a Dave Sham has. He could say, look, I got my rental cars going out for 100 a day. Who need that? You feel what I'm saying? Or maybe they can't, they don't have that influence. So if you do have it, you can help them out, give them a minimum daily payment that they'll make, a minimum that they'll make every day when a car goes out, and then charge your fee on top. You know you got that clout, go ahead and use it. Solve mm-hmm. these problems. If they, you know you're the go-to guy, be that go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Be able to just do good business though. Have integrity and be consistent. If you be consistent in any business, they'll never forget you. So every time they come in town, they're gonna send all their cousins to you. They're gonna send their sales to you and they're gonna make sure that they rent with you because you were consistent and you do good business. If you do that, I, that's why I never worry about having customers because they come into, they dying for me. They hit my Google page. They hit my 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 Instagram. Mm. They hit my business Instagram. They hit in, uh, my Toro. They hit my hire car. So I got them coming from all streams. You know what I'm saying? So that's the thing. And clearly word of mouth is passing around as well because I do good business. And I think of myself as a friendly guy. And I, somewhere where somebody will want to come and feel comfortable getting the car, they know I'm not going to trick them and charge them extra fees. I'm only going to charge you for what you do. I'm not going to charge you for what I want. I'm not going to say, Oh, I've been had to scratch. Let me get them. No, no. Right. We're gonna be detailed on every time, and I'm gonna make sure everybody's happy. That's why I want. That's all I care. Everybody needs to be happy. I love it, bitch. I appreciate you, my brother. Yep. Um, this was just a, a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm really probably gonna go get an I eight tomorrow. It's gonna be so dope. We're gonna pull up back to back. Once you do that, I'm like, look, how much is the wrap? Because you gotta wrap it. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So. Get a good rap guy. And let me tell you another trick on the raps. Go to these. If you got, or if you are like a person. Another common defense to a drug sales charge is that the prosecution is relying on poor quality evidence. So, for example, we see a lot of cases where the police will engage in an undercover sting, an undercover buy, and they will not videotape it. And sometimes won't even audio tape it. And there's no pictures. And they come to court and it's basically just the uncorroborated word of the undercover officer. And the fact is that when there are evidentiary tools that the police could have used to make their case stronger and they don't, juries don't like that. And it often can be a road to acquittal. Also, sometimes the police rely on what they call uh, reliable confidential informants. But when we really go and investigate the informant, we find that they're not reliable at all. A lot of times these people are junkies. A lot of times these people strike a deal to work off their case with the police. And they'll tell the police anything that they want in order to work off their case. I mean, this is testimony that's bought and paid for. And when we have an unreliable informant that, that does a controlled buy that's the basis of the police case, 
we can put that person on the on the witness stand and really tear them to shreds in cross-examination. Navigating the legal waters can be challenging and frightening at times. Being accused of a crime, either a business or a personal matter, finding the right attorney, while it doesn't cost anything to make that call, could cost everything in terms of outcome. When I came to Woolwich Law Firm, I found a team of professionals, assertive, aggressive, focused not only on the outcome, but also on the, the client. There were many nights, late nights, where I, I would pick up the phone and call members of the team, and I always got a response. And that's important. Finding a lawyer who just represents the outcomes and doesn't represent the clients can be terrifying. Really committed to not only winning the case, but also committed to making the experience one that puts the client in the best frame of life. What made this situation more uh, scary for me is the fact that being a high publicity at times, you people can say anything they want about you and it's your job as the person to hire the right law firm to protect your interest, your reputation, and your livelihood. And that's what happened to me. Accused of something that I absolutely did not do, I sought the best representation, not taking a chance on the outcomes, not taking a chance on my livelihood. Wolders Law Firm, again, committed to the outcomes, committed to the client. You won't be sorry. camaraderie um, with them and so those people can help put this in a way to explain it the defense the defendant has to be on it and talking about it and it has to I keep coming back it has to be genuine but most of the time I really don't need to hear from the defense lawyer this is is about the defendant and it, it's if, if you believe what I'm saying about the inhumanity of the sentencing guidelines and the humanity of 3553, the best person to tell that story is the defendant. Um, now, I, I, I've seen defendants that did themselves no favors by how they got up there and maybe didn't treat me respectfully and didn't own up to it um, and didn't have a plan to succeed afterwards uh, but I've seen plenty that have been good advocates for themselves um, by allowing me to get to know them a little bit and, and Judge what influence do, do character reference letters have on your decisions at sentencing I've read that as one of our early questions. I've had 67 in one case. That's too many. 67 character references are too many. Uh, I don't need the whole community, whether it's a white-collar crime or someone who's been selling drugs. Uh, I, I work with a lot of folks who are trying to become judges in the state and federal system. And I encourage them, people who want to become judges, figure out who the 
in the state of Missouri, maybe the governor, in different states, it may be senators that help pick the judges. Figure out their best friends and make a connection with them. Figure out what that judge cares about. If you're a criminal defendant, don't bury the judge in 50 letters that they can't read and then they start skimming over them. Give them meaningful letters. So if there's somebody in your life that can really talk about your early stage and how you got there, I had a sentencing this week where they developed a relationship with a psychologist that really knew them and could talk about that person in a way that said they've owned this and they know what they did is wrong and they've got a plan to move forward. So, you know, five is probably as many as you can really come up with. If all you're going to say is this guy's a really good guy and he screwed up and please go white on him, I don't need 50 of those. A couple of those are okay, but I'm looking for somebody genuine, somebody that really knows that criminal defendant, somebody that really knows how they've progressed through life and how they've progressed since being arrested. They can tell me there's genuine remorse and there's a genuine plan to move ahead. In what ways can expert testimony during a sentencing hearing influence your deliberations about an appropriate sanction? Does that have any value to you? It's rare. Most of my criminal docket is drugs and guns. But in certain cases, I think it is helpful. Obviously, we're going to know about that beforehand because the vast majority of cases involve public defenders and CJA folks, and so they normally have to seek leave of court to get those experts approved. But there are mitigation specialists and typically higher sentencing guideline range cases that can be really meaningful. Figuring out where they got in trouble and how they got in trouble in grade school and high school and this path that led them down that way and then what is actually needed to fill in that gap, I think it is helpful. But like I mentioned before, we keep our cases moving, so I need to know about that beforehand if that's coming at me. So I can either watch it the night before on my computer or we can make the time in the sentencing hearing to hear from that person. There's a little bit of an oxymoron or contradiction. This is the most important day in a defendant's life, and I understand that. I've got to keep cases moving and can't give everybody every day, the whole day. And so finding that balance and me understanding that it's the most important day in that defendant's life. Little Dirk is one of the most notorious rappers in the Chicago drill era of hip-hop music. With almost 5 million followers on Instagram 
It's safe to say the little Dirk has a solid fan base that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Dirk's melodic style of drill music is a big reason why he stood out compared to other Chicago rappers during his rise to stardom. But just like most of the other Chicago rappers, a big part of Lil Dirk's appeal was the authenticity of his music. You knew that Lil Dirk was rapping about real-life experiences, and not just some make-believe nonsense to sell records. In addition to that, Lil Dirk was also respected by a lot of his peers due to his efforts of speaking out against gang violence in Chicago. And the reason why he gained so much respect for that is because Lil Durk actually lived that kind of lifestyle before rapping and wants his fans, or just anyone in general, to know that gang life is not something that you ever want to be a part of. Curious what kind of street antics Lil Durk got into? Well, we have you covered. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Lil Durk. Lil Durk had his first documented arrest in October of 2011. According to multiple reports, Lil Durk was charged with a few different gun charges, with the main one being possession of a firearm with a defaced serial number. A gun charge is no joke in Chicago, so this was a pretty serious first charge, especially with the serial number being scratched off the gun. Having no serial number gives the cops a good reason to think that the weapon is being used for criminal-like reasons. At his sentencing, Lil Durk pled guilty to a reduced charge of aggravated, unauthorized use of a weapon. Lil Durk spent three months in jail and was later released on bond, but was later sent back to serve 87 more days. Even though this was Lil Durk's first conviction, it still made Durk a convicted felon. Lil Durk's next arrest was on June 5th, 2013. According to court records, Lil Durk was hanging around on South Green Street in Chicago when police approached him to investigate a call of a man with a gun. This must have caught Lil Durk off guard because he apparently took a loaded 40 caliber handgun out of his waistband and quickly threw it in his car. Lil Durk obviously wasn't very stealthy when doing this because the police clearly saw Dirk do this, which gave them enough probable cause to search his vehicle. After a quick search, Chicago police arrested Little Dirk right on the spot. Dirk's charge was unlawful use of a weapon by a felon. Little Dirk was held on a $100,000 bond and his lawyer would later claim to have nine affidavits from witnesses who can confirm Lil Durk was innocent. One witness even admitted that the gun was his and not Lil Durk's. Durk was released about a month later on July 18, 2013. Lil Durk's next run-in with the law wasn't an arrest, but rather a shootout that took place while he was on tour. Sources say that a shootout happened just hours before Little Dirk's scheduled performance at the Theater of Living Arts in Center City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The shootout left Little Dirk's tour bus damaged by gunfire and also left one man dead. Little Dirk was not arrested or questioned by the police. No other updates were made public on this situation as well. This next incident is just an update from when he was arrested on June 5th, 2013 on felony gun charges. 
According to court records, Little Dirk was ordered to court on August 19, 2016, where the judge dropped all of his charges. The judge must have noticed that he was changing his ways and admired that he was speaking out against Chicago gang violence. Shortly after, Little Dirk moved to Atlanta where he became completely focused on music and even claimed to be a studio rat. Little Dirk managed to stay out of trouble for about three years. But it all came to an end after Dirk became a wanted man by the Fulton County Police Department. Multiple reports claim that Little Dirk had a warrant issued for his arrest and planned to charge Little Dirk with criminal intent to commit murder, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during commission of a felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and associating with a criminal street gang to participate in a crime. And here's the kicker. All of these charges stem from the King Vaughn incident that we covered in a video a few days ago. The link to that video will be in the top left corner and in the description below. I highly suggest you check that out to get more details on this situation. Anyways, Duke's Jeep was allegedly the car used in the shooting, and Dirk, Vaughn, and another OTF affiliate, Bayzoo or Zoo, were all reported to be in the car at the time of the shooting. Since the situation was so serious, Atlanta is charging all of them with the same charges regardless of who actually pulled the trigger. King Vaughn was the first to get arrested, and then it was Zoo, and now all that was left was Lil Dirk. A few days after hearing about the warrants for his arrest, Lil Dirk posted on his Instagram story, turning myself in tomorrow. This was a huge shock to his fans, since nobody expected him to be involved in a shooting, especially after all his success. The next day, Dirk dropped a song called Turn Myself In, and just a few hours later, he actually did turn himself in. Little Dirk fell on those times. I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile store crash, I mean Boost Mobile store launch, I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile store. I fall on hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? You go from all that to working out of where that's humbling. I go from... Yo, there's nothing worse. There's, it, it's bad to be down. Mm -hmm. But nothing worse than to go up and then come down. Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar, mm. working at a warehouse, living in my sister's house with five kids. At the time, she had five kids in the three-bedroom. Four-bedroom. I, I made it uncomfortable. Yeah. I made the living uncomfortable. Yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set. I had an air bed. The Mercury Cougar, the door didn't open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were gonna fire me. 
I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like a $2,000 check, right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go and I call. I know the next day they're going to fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospitals to have insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. They was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week, boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work, they made me go to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> in counseling, I find my depression. Wow. Of what I was going through, where I was at, mind state, what I didn't deal with. What did you find out about yourself through counseling? Through the traumas that I was living through, I've never dealt with them. I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend. Like, I've made it to where it didn't exist. So... They taught me, and I remember she was like giving me different exercises, and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened. It's okay. It's part of life. That I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. So after that, she had to deal with it head on. Boom. Wow. So then I realized, it took me a little while, I went back. And um, when I went back to that job, I kicked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm-hmm. Got the Christmas right, bonus. I came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? <laughs> Listen, they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, right? Um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went to apply for Wells Fargo. I became personal banker. Guys, from warehouse, personal banker. Got back in my suit. Got it. <laughs> right, right. So, back to the old Jew. So I got back in my suit. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got back in the suit. Um, and that's when I started learning banking products. I started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans. They couldn't get approved for loans at all. Like the, the ratio for people who get loans. Mm-hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like, a two million dollar mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a two million dollar mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a. Oh, you got two hundred thousand. Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a two million dollar mortgage. Yeah, no. Listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo. All right. P 
people will come in, they have $2 million mortgages, they will be able to come in and go, looking for a personal loan, they can come and get when I when I When I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy, I go in, That's all I was using. it's seven fifty a day, yes. and he said, yo, he'll just go down there, he paid the seven fifty, yes. leave, they go pick it That's up. That's what I was doing before I got my lot, and what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it. Right I next had, door. Um, here's, the, here's the clutch, Hutch Clutch Play. So, Peachy, they use a third party called Wait, uh, Wait W-A-Y, W-A-Y. Yep. And I was paying half the price that Peachy charges. On way. If on way. Yo, they be having joints for $2, That's what bro. I was paying. $2, because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not going to be paying $36 for these parking tickets no more. Yeah. I'm going to drop the car off at the airport, mm-hmm. parking lot, Peachy, pay $2, and then charge the guests for the, for the $2. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then, so the beautiful thing is they'll pick the car up, from Peachy, going about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm. Smooth process. Perfect. Perfect. Smooth process. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? They'll take the train, this Atlantic station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport. So they don't mm. have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. Yeah. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there. So what's, so, uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for... It's only two years. Two years. You're going crazy. And you're just now, you just now put out your course. And yeah, that's a fact. Yo, I, I don't know how many courses you sold, over, <laughs> like, the, like the first release, yeah, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this. Yeah, because people been asking you for yes. for two years, yes. yo, put me on. Yes, I've been sharing this. Yeah, and I and I saw free. Right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus, he he was on my neck, mm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course, yeah. calling me, bro, you gotta drop a course. You know how he talks. Right. You gotta drop the course, or we're gonna do it. What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that. I got a bar with that where if I don't charge, you know how Neo to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not going to put it into action. They're yeah. not going to respect it. You already know that, how that sure. works, too. So I said, cool. I'm going to charge. See, I'm going to test out the price. I charge $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course. I'm doing pre-sales. Cash at me. I got... Cash at Cash at went crazy. Man, man, look at my cash out right here. Where my phone at? Let me see. Cash out right here. Cash out. It you wasn't my, a link. It wasn't a credit card. And they trust me. Most people are like, nah, that's a cash fa- That's a fact. And I believe because you built a, and you know, for those that know you, know, like, you are a very credible person, yeah, yeah, very honest. Like, I'm it's there. not, we know that, like, Steve. money ain't your biggest thing. Yeah, yeah. You feel me? So, 
when you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock That's a with fact. It. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st- stages to the point where I now just, yo, here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So what's, what's, what's in the course? Talk to me about the what's whole in the process. course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to the dealership, you think you're going to be there in there for an hour? How long did most people be in the dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until until you feel like you just want to die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these. Oh, you need warranty? It's just going to be an extra $20 on your monthly payment. <laughs> you sign here. <laughs> man, give me the keys, man. Get them out here. It prevents that in that session. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name? Or do you want to be a broker where you're a middleman between the cars? Meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover, somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle of saying, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly. And run me my fifty dollars to let you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman. Yo, let me ask you this: because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a. a I, I think I made a post about it, and um, a guy uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car. This is the keys. This is what it looks like. Da, 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 da. My boy Jacoby, again, the one who told me about relay rides, which mm-hmm. was Turo at the time. Right. He said, yo, I got, I know a dude who has a parking lot mm. at the airport. Here's his number. Check him out. His name is um, Kareem. So I called him, went, checked the, the spot out. It looked like a full a rental car company. Right. But it was empty. It was next to Enterprise, next to Hertz, wow. next to a car rental company. Um, I mean, car van company that rents out vans and um, Peachy Airlock Air, Airport parking. Where so yeah. when you go to the airport, you can park your car. Yeah, there. for sure. Yeah, that's where I park all the time. It was right there. I mm. said, "Yo, what can we do to do the deal?" He told me, "Well, I got the spot for my own car rental company, but I'm not doing it right now. So you can rent each space for hundred dollars a car." I said, "Run it." So I'm paying four thousand dollars. A month to have it. What about the office space? Can I get it? I'm not using it right now. You can use it. Cool. I'm using it. Oh, wow. Long story short, he ended up not being on. I'm basically took over the whole thing, renovated it, put the sign up, got a whole car rental lot, my own car rental lot in Atlanta, Georgia, at the airport. Wow. So when I when I have on my listing on Turo, and now it says pickup address airport. But what's crazy is it's two minutes away from the airport. However, I still was charged a delivery fee. So anybody who needed a car at the airport, you know I was one twenty. Brother Joshua was telling me he does, like yeah, he was like yo the um he was telling me that his his delivery fee was fifty dollars. So he'll drive there and back or just one way. Fifty. He said his delivery fee is fifty dollars. He goes deliver for fifty dollars. Yeah. But then I looked on yours and I saw it was one twenty. Yes. 
120. So and I'm gonna call Joshua today, like, yo, you know, Matty charged 120 for See, delivery. That's he got two Porsches on there because yeah, he, yeah, he got five cars all together. Yeah, and he started getting cars. Like, bro, you ain't tell me you you joined the tour. Oh, he's lit. All these questions, he's but lit. Where did his cars come from? Right, right. Yeah, brother Davey. Davey, my yeah. brother Davey, brother Ed. Like a lot of the people that see me, they now understand the process. It just makes sense. Yeah, I'm, first off, I, and I feel some type of way because I was the first to know. So you was the first to know. That's legit what happened. But that's what you happened. I told you first, like, bro, you gotta know about what I'm doing right now. It didn't Yo, make sense to me. I, I saw from your face. The way you looked at me, I was like, oh, he just don't get it. Uh, thanks to God for uh But, for but now he flourishes. Yeah. And there's a time for everything. We are here. So literally, I, I just got the um, a Range Rover 2017. Yes, sir. And I'm going I'm to go grab uh, probably three more this week. Right, right, yeah. right. And the cars don't need to be new. So where do you, where, okay, so somebody that doesn't have a lot and doesn't have a target next to them, where do they keep the car? Where do they keep so the car? So based on my students, they tell me that they park it at their homes. Some people are not comfortable with that. They'll deliver it whenever they just get a new booking. They'll meet them at Publix. Mm. They'll meet them at, they'll park it somewhere, even on the street, incognito. So depending on what type of car you have. If you have a regular car, you can just park it at yeah, a sure. regular spot, right? But if you have a luxury car, it's like it sticks out like a, uh, a sore thumb. thumb. Yeah. So, depending on what type of car you have, depending on what area you live in, you just have to figure it out. It's, yeah. not, it's not difficult. You just got to figure out. A lot of people harp on all the details, though, in the beginning before they start. Mm. I didn't do that. I literally said, I have a car already. Let me see what it's going to do. I uploaded it. Instant booking. Same day booking. Now I'm forced to figure it out. Mm. All right? Yes, I took an L. Yeah. So as the money wise, yeah. but I got it back. Yeah, for sure. To for where sure. I made twenty six hundred dollars profit off of one car. And in, in your course, you teach how to not take these L's. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I took an L with my Maserati. Shane, Shane, that's my guy. But he didn't tell me how to how to uh, how to what it called. Um, look at the car properly. The mm. car I'm purchasing, I didn't know the Maserati that I bought. All the tires were were bald in the inside. I'm outside. Oh, it's perfect. Good, good tires. I was driving, tire got flat. I went to Firestone. I pulled in Firestone. The dude pulled out the tire and said, look at this tire, man. Show me how bald and naked that tire was. Wow. He said, you were driving. Yeah, I just got the car. He said, this is the most horrible tire. Matter of fact, look at the rotors. You need new rotors. Went to the back. This one needs a new one. I'm thinking he's just lying to me because this is my first time in the car yeah. industry, really. So I'm like, I know mechanics. They're known for being, yeah. you know what I'm saying, finessers. Right. Hey, man, you lying right now. He said, but he had no reason to lie. Firestone, that's not, he wasn't it's that not a commission-type joint. Yeah, it's not his own shop. He's like, I'm here to do my hourly, whatever the case right. may be. Right? So he told me that you see these ridges on these rotors? These are not supposed to be here. Right, right, <laughs> right. You see how rough this one is? You hear that? That ain't supposed to be there. Nobody told me that. <laughs> so I had to take, I called uh, Maserati. All right, cool. I'm just buying the parts. How much for a new rotors? On uh, how many cars, how many, how many tires you do? I need all four. Twenty eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So so um so you just find a place to keep your cars, yes. and you just kind of keep rolling. You know what Joshua used to? The um, the, the, the park and ride airport joint? Joint. Sure.
fell on those times, I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile store crash, I mean, Boost Mobile store launch, I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile store. Fall on hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? You go from all that to working at a warehouse, that's humbling. I go from... Yo, there's nothing worse, there's, it, it's bad to be down. Mm-hmm. But nothing worse than to go up and then come down. Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar, mm. working at a warehouse, living in my sister's house, with five kids at the time. She had five kids in the three bedroom. Four bedroom. I I made it uncomfortable. Yeah. I made the living uncomfortable. Yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set. I had an air bed. The Mercury Cougar, the door didn't open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were gonna fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like a $2,000 check, right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go, and I call, I know the next day they're gonna fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospitals to have insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. It was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week, boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> in counseling I find my depression wow of what I was going through where I was at mind state what I didn't deal with what did you find out about yourself through counseling through the traumas that I was living through I've never dealt with them I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend like I've made it to where it didn't exist. So they taught me and I remember she was like giving me different exercises and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened. It's okay, it's part of life. That I had to cope with that, with the fact that 
that relationship I had is gone. So after that, you had to deal with it head on. Boom. Wow. So then I realized it took me a little while. I went back and um, when I went back to that job, kicked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm-hmm. Got the Christmas right, card. I came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? <laughs> Listen, they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, right? <laughs> um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went to apply for Wells Fargo. I became a personal banker. Guys, from warehouse, personal banker. Got back in my suit. Got it. <laughs> right, right. So, back to the old Jew. So I got back in my suit. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got back in the suit. Um, and that's when I started learning banking products. I started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans. They couldn't get approved for loans at all. Like the, the ratio for people who get loans. Mm-hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like, a two million dollar mortgage. What? Yeah, they will have a two million dollar mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a oh you got two hundred thousand? Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on. A two million dollar mortgage? Yeah, no, listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo. Right? People will come in, they have two million dollar mortgages. They will be able to come in and go. Looking for a personal loan. They can come and get. What distinguishes incest from sexual assault is that for sexual assault, the state would have to prove that the sex was non-consensual. But for incest, even consensual sex is considered a crime in the state of Nevada if it's an incestuous relationship. Ostensibly, the state chooses to regulate it as a morality issue and to prevent inbreeding and increased risk of birth defect. Compact, sedan, and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Turo, you get to choose the car, no hidden fees, everything is clear as day. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving my, this is how it happened. Justin, new ACL, I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I'm, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte, I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car. He hopped in his car, what car? It was S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. Because <laughs> like, y'all about the same height, too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he grilled me so much. On my, on my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get in the car. I'm, t- <laughs> I'm tired of this. Driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> That's how I end up getting the testimony. So that's the question. Why would somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budget or a traditional rental car mm-hmm. company versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars. Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit 
checks and credit cards. I know you sometimes, I, there was a point in my life where you're so, you say, okay, I'm going to go get, I'm going to rent a car, but you never know what they're going to ask for. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it, you know, that, yeah. my heart always You don't know if you're going to get it. Like, you're get it. They need like, credit card? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. with Turo, you don't need to have a credit card. That's another benefit of it. Or the platforms like Turo, even a personal booking, all depends on how somebody wants to run their business. But usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age. Mm-hmm. You have to put it on a certain deposit, deposit certain credit. Uh, what else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a true, local. True, like there's true, true. Of course they do it to protect their business, I understand. Mm-hmm. But some people don't have those options. So they need other options to be able to get a car, to run out. Gotcha. So, so they really, really Toro. They'll let anybody who has a driver's of license. They, of course, they go do background checks. Of course, they, there's a, 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 a vetting process. Of course, all that, and of course, the car's insured. But it's not as difficult nice, as gotcha. the traditional rental car. Gotcha, gotcha. And you can just find what you like, like right. something nice. Gotcha. That's the key piece. Gotcha. It's options. I got better so, options. So, income potential. Walk me through income potential. Income potential. Depending on what car you have, it always falls around anywhere cash flowing. This is net profit. Cash flowing anywhere from $300 a month to even upwards of what I was making, $3,000 per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging $1,600. My my Tesla was averaging $2,600. Profit. Profit, 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 profit. This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my my C three hundred it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the the eight hundred dollar range. Mm-hmm. So, it all, but, but me, I have my receipts. So I show cash people flows, cash flow. Though. Cash flow, cash flow. So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check-ins and checkouts. But it wasn't labor intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. Yeah. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. Mm. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small, small fleet, three cars. I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300. They were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the Corvette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was so it was amazing leverage. Where do we? Where do you keep all these cars? All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So I initially, remember while I was keeping my cars, Target. Yes. Once I went from three, and I turned up. I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. Target um, general manager called me and said, um, this is Matthew, are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you got to move them. You're ODing right now. I, I, I did the most. I, I forced <laughs> You're ODing them. right now. I was getting away with the three cars, but as soon as I tried to bring them all there, then now I was like, all right, I'll move them. Can, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool, it'll give you a week. I think it was during it was it was it was during a big weekend where they need they definitely need the space. Right. And now my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures. You can see on the cameras. They show me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures near the cars, oh, all that wow. crazy stuff. So I had to figure it out. 
I had to move all my cars to my apartment. One of my other apartments in Norcross. It was, I got a picture of that. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away with it for two weeks until they called me and said, you got to move these cars. <laughs> right. By God's grace, by God's grace, as I was posting, every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, look, I got another car. In terms of the severity of penalty, possession would be the least serious narcotic offense. Then would come possession for sales of narcotics would be more serious. Then actual sales of narcotics and finally, trafficking of narcotics. And in essence, the penalties go up like steps uh, with each level of narcotics possession. Nevada narcotics laws are actually the harshest in the country. And even sale of a small quantity of narcotics can subject an individual to substantial periods of incarceration. As a matter of fact, under the Nevada trafficking law, sale of more than 28 grams of a controlled narcotic can subject an individual to life in prison upon conviction. Uh, although the, the statutes are broken up into uh, possession, uh, possession for sale, sale of narcotics, and trafficking laws, uh, because uh, the amounts in, uh, to be considered trafficking in Nevada are so low, as a matter of fact, four grams or higher can, can constitute trafficking in Nevada. Um, if you're charged for trafficking, you know, you really need to obtain counsel because the penalties are very harsh here. The good news with regard to narcotics laws in the state of Nevada is although the laws themselves are very harsh, typically prosecuting agencies are fairly reasonable about negotiating resolutions in these cases. For example, um, one case that got a substantial amount of media attention was when Paris Hilton was arrested for possessing cocaine. And um, it was originally a felony charge. There was a lot of immediate media attention. Other celebrities and, and certainly a lot of people that aren't famous, you know, going to Nevada, specifically Las Vegas, to, to have a good time, to party, uh, and choose to engage in narcotic activity. Um, most often, although the penalties uh, are severe, um, for a simple possession of narcotics, it's very common to be able to negotiate a resolution that involves a plea to a misdemeanor offense so that uh, a fun time in Las Vegas on the weekend doesn't necessarily turn into a lifetime of uh, difficulty uh, and a, a felony record. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. The penalties depend on whether or not you have priors. For a first-time offense, it would be treated the same as a DUI alcohol. 
Um, minimum two days in jail, up to six months in jail. Uh, for a second time offense, it's a minimum of 10 days in jail. And for a third time offense within seven years, you're looking at a felony with a minimum one year in state prison. Additionally, you would be required to do a DUI class, which you could do online. You'd be required to attend a victim impact program, and you'd be required to pay fines and fees. Here in the state of Nevada, if you've been in an accident while driving with a prohibited substance, including marijuana, and someone's been injured, the penalties go up substantially. And you're looking at up to 20 years in state prison if you were in a DUI marijuana-related accident where somebody was injured. Over here. 
here. I got somebody here. Somebody, I need a boss over here. I got somebody here. I got somebody here. Good job, guys. Open up. arrested in connection with the deadly shooting at Irving Plaza last May faced a judge today. All right, as Lisa Everett shows us, federal prosecutors think they've got more than enough evidence to prove that he is the trigger man. There were some stunning claims in a case here at federal court that has disturbed many in New York's hip-hop community. A federal prosecutor says a popular podcast host known for shooting off his mouth was also shooting off a gun inside Irving Plaza last May, but his attorney denies the charges. 31-year-old Daryl Campbell, better known as multimedia personality Taxstone, went before a judge in federal court to be arraigned on two federal gun charges, including gun possession by a convicted felon. His attorney, Kenneth J. Montgomery, told me outside the courthouse, Campbell is not guilty. We deny all those charges. In court papers, federal prosecutors say DNA retrieved from the Caltech 9mm handgun on the grip, the magazine, and the trigger indicate it was Campbell's weapon and that he fired the shots that wounded rapper Troy Ave and two others and killed Troy Ave's bodyguard, Ronald Bangham McFadder, last May. Montgomery says there's more to all of this. Obviously, there's going to be discovery turned over and more facts and perhaps 3,500 materials in the federal system, so I'm going to reserve any comments about facts uh, until the appropriate time. Prosecutors say Troy Ave picked up the gun after being shot and that it's the one we see him allegedly holding in the video released by the NYPD. In court, the pro There are a variety of circumstances in which self-defense may become an issue in a criminal case. Uh, it could be a situation where somebody uses deadly force and they've killed somebody and the defendant is claiming, I use that force to protect myself or to protect somebody else because under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the same right to defend yourself as you do to use self-defense to defend somebody else who's in a position of vulnerability. Additionally, under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the right to use deadly force against a burglar that comes into your home with the intent to commit a felony or cause substantial bodily harm to somebody.
We represent a lot of people involved in disturbances, fist fights, often alcohol is a factor, but it's very common in Las Vegas, people are coming to have a good time. And sometimes, you know, things get out of hand uh, and people get into fights when they're out trying to have a good time. Um, it's not uncommon in those situations for the police to come and just arrest everybody and charge everybody with a crime. Uh, however, there's nothing in the law that says that you have to tolerate someone else's abuse. So if somebody else is physically aggressive with you, um, you have the right to defend yourself. So if you've been charged with a battery and that battery stemmed from some type of, of, of quarrel um, where you felt legitimately that you had to defend yourself and used physical force in doing so, um, it's important that you hire an attorney that will aggressively defend you and assert your right to self-defense in order to either uh, convince the prosecutor to drop the charges altogether or uh, to win your case uh, with a self-defense argument at trial. Another area where self-defense can come into play is with relate, in relation to battery domestic violence, a quarrel between, for example, a husband and a wife. Um, often it's a neighbor that calls the police. The police come, they may hear arguing back and forth. In Nevada, most often it seems that law enforcement tends to arrest the, the person that got the worst of it. So that if somebody has a mark, the presumption is, well, the other party was the aggressor, the other party should be taken in. But it doesn't always work out that way. It could be that, uh, that the person that has the injury is the one that started the fight. And it's not always the man that, that does the battering. Sometimes, um, you know, a woman might throw something or a woman might swing at, punch her domestic partner. And the, the man might simply be responding or defending himself. In those situations, self-defense certainly may come into play and an aggressive uh, defense attorney will assert that uh, you were only you, you know, you were exercising your right to self, uh, your, to, to defend yourself, which is, which is perfectly lawful. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future. Pretty complicated, pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six. And those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, 
the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via Chapter 4 under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence. It's a three-pointer. You have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence. You'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18, and it's a little bit different. Here you get, you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult, and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months, and it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence, imposition, or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years and a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct. Under 4A1.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, 
okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as prior as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but you know, on that point. But the basic rule is, if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as uh, you're not going to include it as a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, just one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If a if defendant comes in for a sent, uh, in a prior sentence and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they, they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... A person's home is their castle. And it's a rare occasion that law enforcement is going to violate the sanctity of your home. But if law enforcement does knock at your door, you would ask them, do you have a warrant? If they have a warrant signed by a judge, let them in. Law enforcement may also try to get your consent to search. They may step in when you open the door and say, we're going to search your home. At that point, you absolutely have the right to say, no, I need you to leave. You don't have my permission to search. The only circumstance that the police can come into your home without a warrant would be if there was an exigent circumstance, such as a health and safety check, if law enforcement had the reasonable belief that someone in your home might be injured, or if they are in hot pursuit of a fleeing felon who just ran into your home. The bottom line is you have the right to be secure in your home and you have the right to say no to the police if they try to search your home without a warrant. We're going to consider those things that occurred in avoiding detection or responsibility for the offense of conviction. And those things may be occurring even after the offense of conviction, but there's some attempt to avoid detection or responsibility. Still, temporally, it's expanded a little bit, but there's still this nexus, this connection with our offensive conviction. Now, under A1, the who is going to be everything the defendant did. We have, uh, you know, a lot more legalistic type language. We say if the defendant committed an act, or if the defendant aided an act, or abetted it, or counseled it, commanded it, induced it, procured it, willfully caused it. But basically, it's like, did the defendant do it? 
but we're also going to, in some instances, look at the acts of others. Now, the acts of others, we require a further analysis to occur, and this we refer to it as our three-part analysis. First, you have to determine the scope of the defendant's jointly undertaken activity. And then you have to make the determination, well, these acts of others, were they in furtherance of this undertaking my defendant was engaged in? Would a reasonable person have foreseen that engaging in undertaking with other people, that they may have done these kinds of acts in furtherance of this undertaking? The defendant committed the robbery, okay? So now we're asking about this, the specific offense characteristics of Chapter 2 consideration. We know A1 covers Chapter 2 consideration. And the question is, was a firearm possessed? Well, the analysis is this act occurred during the offense of conviction. He possessed the gun during the offense of conviction. It was an act that was committed by the defendant. The defendant did it during the offense of conviction. It's relevant. Yes, when the guideline says give five offense level increase, you have relevant conduct of a firearm being possessed by the defendant. You give the five offense level increase. But say our defendant did rob this bank with others, and our defendant didn't carry the gun. The other guy carried the gun. When the offense level increase says give five levels if a firearm was possessed, is our defendant going to get that or not? The three-step analysis. Was our defendant engaged in jointly undertaking activity with this other person? And what was that scope? Well, the undertaking, undertaking that our defendant had was the robbery. Was this act of this other person, this act we're looking at, the carrying of the gun, was that in furtherance of this robbery? Hmm. He did point it at the teller's mace. Did, did seem to give money a lot more quickly when he did so. Seems to have been in furtherance of the undertaking. And then finally, would a reasonable person who has undertaken a robbery with someone else have foreseen that someone may have used a weapon during a crime of violence? And we have to answer that as well in the affirmative. If so, then even though it's an act of someone else, it is relevant conduct, and being relevant conduct, the defendant's held accountable for it. This defendant and that defendant, they robbed a bank together. Hmm, what was the scope of the conspiracy? Well, the scope of the conspiracy was to rob the bank. Sometimes the conspiracy and what the defendant has undertaken are mirror images of each other. They are one and the same. But that is not always the case. The scope of the criminal activity jointly undertaken by the defendant is not necessarily the same as the scope of the entire conspiracy. The examples would be uh, the defendant is, is convicted of a conspiracy count, uh, and the conspiracy count has your defendant and 100 other people engaged in a conspiracy to import drugs on 100 different occasions into the country. Well, your defendant is criminally responsible, criminally liable for this conspiracy, having been convicted of it. But for sentencing purposes, we say, well, what this defendant undertook may not be the same as this entire conspiracy. And you have to look at the facts and say, well, this defendant's undertaking actually was the importation of drugs on three occasions. Out of those hundreds of importations, this defendant was engaged in three of those. You have narrowed down from this entire conspiracy the, the undertaking of this particular defendant. 
reasonably foreseeable. Uh, we have that language about reasonably foreseeable. Reasonably foreseeable is the language in our three-step analysis, three-part analysis for holding the defendant accountable for the acts of others. As such, reasonable foreseeability applies only to the conduct of others. It does not apply to the acts of the defendant. For instance, the defendant's convicted, say, of the conspiracy. And the act of the defendant in the conspiracy was the defendant brought in the bag of drugs that contained two kilos of heroin. Well, turns out the defendant says, gosh, I had no idea I was bringing heroin. I thought it was cocaine. And I didn't realize it was two kilos. It felt like about a kilo and a half to me, you know. And the question is, well, gee, would that have been reasonably foreseeable to the defendant that he was carrying heroin instead of cocaine and that it was two kilos instead of a half kilo? You don't even have to go there. Because if the defendant did it, and it occurred during the offense conviction, the defendant's responsible for that. So reasonable foreseeability isn't something we're looking at in regard to the acts of the defendant. That's when we're looking at the acts of others. And as we look at the acts of others, keep in mind, it's only one part of the three-part analysis of looking at the acts of others. For instance, the defendant, out of these 100 importations with these hundreds of people over this long period of time, undertook three of those importations. First time failure to register in the state of Nevada as a sex offender is a category D felony carrying a prison term of up to four years. Failure to register for a second time or more in the state of Nevada is a category C felony, which carries a prison sentence of up to five years. Additionally, you can only request the district court to eliminate your requirement of registration if you have registered for 15 years consecutively. So failing to register would cause that time clock to start anew and delay your ability to seek to have the court end that requirement. Hello, I'm Michael Castile, an attorney with the Las Vegas Defense Group. Other than the crime of murder, in Nevada, sexual assault is the most serious offense you can face in this state. If you are convicted, in addition to facing a lifelong prison term, you're also required to register for life as a sex offender. Even if eventually you are paroled, it may be difficult to land a job with this on your record. In Nevada, the legal definition of sexual assault otherwise known as rape, is when a person subjects another person to penetration sexually against the will of the victim or under conditions in which a perpetrator knows or should know the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting. In short, it's illegal for you to have sex with someone against the person's will or when you know or should have known the person lacked the capacity to say no or to understand what was happening. In some cases, where someone unlawfully touches another person in a sexual manner that falls short of sexual assault, such as groping, for example, he or she might be charged with the lesser Nevada crime of open and gross lewdness. In Nevada, even though rape is one of the most serious crimes you can be accused of, it also lends itself to several effective defenses. The following are some of the strategies a defense lawyer may employ in Nevada sexual assault cases. Number one, false accusations. 
judges and prosecutors know that innocent people can be falsely accused of rape, whether it's out of anger, jealousy, revenge, a way to win child custody, or just an honest misunderstanding. If your attorney can raise a reasonable doubt by showing that someone may have falsely accused you, your sexual assault case should be dismissed. Number two, lack of proof. Unless there was a video recording of the incident, sexual assault can be extremely difficult to prove because it often comes down to a case of he says, she says. As long as the state cannot show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, sexual assault charges should be dropped. And finally, number three, consent. Rape is forcing someone to have sex against their will or when they're too incapacitated to resist. Therefore, if your attorney can show that the victim gave his or her consent to have sex, then Nevada sexual assault charges cannot stand. If you or someone you know has been charged with sexual assault, please don't hesitate to contact our law office at 702-DEFENSE to arrange for your free consultation, or visit us at 702defense.com for more information. Thank you. I want to introduce you to a well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a... uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. Uh, Let, let's I, talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem congruent. You're a, you're an attorney. Uh, you later became a CEO, and that you found, and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the Department of Justice was targeting you for prosecution. The case ultimately began as a uh, Securities and Exchange Commission civil case, and there was a referral, as I understood it, made to the uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in, in the Northern District of Illinois. How long did that take? You found out that there was an SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation? No, actually. That began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002, uh, and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the pendency of the criminal case. So the cases were going simultaneously. First, there was a Securities Exchange Commission case. Then that was put on hold and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of of, uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do? Well, when I first found out I was a target was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. 
I hired an attorney at that time, and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted, or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a, a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved and. and Tell us about that. That's, that's interesting. So you, there, the, the Department of Justice raided your facility. Then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? Or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications? I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was. So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just it was a uh, no cash. Uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment. And you appeared for your arraignment, and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial? I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later. What was the cost of litigating that case? Do you recall, David? Um, I believe it was $25,000. So not a tremendous amount of legal ex- legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long? 14 years. Well, was- let, me, let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to a, uh, an, an amount of years. That was never- What were you anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement? Uh, in the area of 10 years. It was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, uh, specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur. So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted that back? That's in the 90s and the 80s. That, that mindset exists. It's not relevant now. Only people that that's relevant to is people who won't acquire new information and don't stay up to date with systems, right? Because there's no way that you can look at a vehicle unless you just don't have the information. I got friends that make six figures off of vehicles. No way you're going to tell me that that's a, a liability. It's a liability if we don't utilize it right. So then I started telling people, I said, listen, you want, you want to learn. Okay, here. 
let's take a car like a smart car, right? I went and found the littlest car, right? Littlest car that nobody wants. I'm, when I tell you, right, it's the smart car for two, right? Listen to me, I'll right? I'll be honest. I, I didn't think it was yours when I saw it. I right? said, and then I saw you drive it. I said, it is. <laughs> yeah, right? And I'm like, yo, I, like, I put music in and everything. Yeah. Got beat. I'm like, yo, listen, funny thing is that I buy the smart car and then not only, so I buy the smart car. I tell people, listen, let me explain something to you. I got the smart car. And this is what I teach people as well. I say, look, you can go to a uh, swap a lease and literally do a lease takeover, put no money down out of pocket, get a car that costs $200 a month. This vehicle costs $200 a month. Now what happens next? Since this vehicle costs $200 a month, I say, hey, yo, listen, earn your leisure. I got a car that's going to be in, in downtown Metro Atlanta 12 hours a day. It'll probably get exposed to about 20,000, 30,000 people a month. Yo. Give me 200 bucks. I want to put earn your leisure on the left side in your company promotion. Is that something that you'll be okay with? 200, we'll do it. Sold. Lights, right? That That's that's light. Okay, well, guess what? I'm going to get somebody else to put their business on the, on the right side. I'm going to get another business to put their business on the back of the door, on the back of the vehicle, right? I now make 600 bucks off a $200 liability. Then I they say, well, how are you going to keep it in the Metro Atlanta for 12 hours a day? You going to drive it? No, I'm going to go and hire somebody to drive it. So now I'm a, well, I'm going to rent the car out to somebody who want to drive for Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, one of the grocery delivery services. Look, give me 150 a week you don't pay gas or insurance you give me 150 a week and you use the vehicle now i got and you use the car six hours a day you got options you got um, access to a six hours a day seven days a week that's one person i do two people so now that's 12 hours that's a 12 hour shift in the day that's two people paying me 150 150 a week that's 300 that's 1200 a month so now I'm making $1,200 a month off the drivers, $600 off the advertisement. That's $1,800 a month. $1,600 of that is profit. I'm making $1,600 profit off of one vehicle that they said was a, 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 a liability. If I got two cars, I'm $3,200 to the good every month. To the good. $3,200 a month. Straight cash, homie. It's, what, it's one of the best things I've heard you say, man. Mindset is the only liability. It's And now you make $3,200 a month. Imagine this. What's your background need to be? What do you need a degree in? That's $3,200 a month paying for a vehicle. Now, if you if you really get tricky and you understand is that, then you go, well, it's other cars out there. And you can look up, it's websites that are hacked and say, hey, look, these cars perform the best on Turo, right? You can literally get one of those cars and then make it pay for your other ones. Or you just use it as income. You come home and you're like, yo, I got my credit together, but I don't know what to do with it. How do I turn my credit to cash? That's one of the credit to cash strategies is actually learning how to execute and and learn system. I, I, want, I want to talk about something. That was a whole lot of game. Um, what you're known for, and that's turning credit into cash. Mm -hmm. Most people, when we think credit cards and how we get cash from it, it's like, yo, if we 
get a cash advance, then we can take money out from it. Yeah. But your strategy has no cash advance and it still is liquidating. Can you break that down? So it's a little bit different. Like I, it's a whole bunch of different ways, right? When it comes to like turning credit to cash and I tell people one, you don't ever want to do, if you had to pull money out doing a cash advance, they're going to charge you more and they hit you with extra fees and a higher percentage. So I tell people kind of stay away from the cash advances, but I do things like it's just ways to generate cash, especially like my mindset is entrepreneur at all times. So like I tell people do things like, you know, knowing which credit cards to use to do certain things. Um, for example, um, if I go and run ads, right? Like I could run ads and when I run ads, I can run ads and generate income back. But if I wanted to like pull money off, like what you just said, something like you just said, like trying to pull money off without doing a cash advance fee. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we used to do for fun is like I would go on a cruise. And because when I go on a cruise ship, guess what happens on a cruise ship? Is that they give you the debit card, the room key. Mm-hmm. So when I go on a cruise ship and use the room key, I would just go to the casino and get 20000 30000 I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, Casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. Additional offense levels. Would that be applicable in our scenario here? Okay, so this guy's going from a 20 to a 22. Uh, firearm, weapon, or threat of death, and that can be anywhere from two additional offense levels up to seven, depends upon type of weapon and the use made of that weapon. Okay, so the guidelines would have you add five additional offense levels as you're, if you're looking in your guidelines manual. See, this guy's going to pick up five more levels for, for the possession of the firearm. Uh, how about victim injury? There was a victim injured. And what was the degree of injury? 
bodily injury. Now, of course, bodily injury, you know, you're saying, well, what is bodily injury? We know the person got pushed, they had this injury. What was the degree? Again, as you're applying these guidelines, the commission has, following the guideline itself, commentary that includes application notes. And there's a lot of definitions, a lot of definitions are contained there uh, to include what, what are definitions of injury. We send you back to somewhere else in the book to locate those. But definitions of, of injury, of weapon, other things that you will be considering in the application of the guidelines, we have definitions for those things. Uh, another just general point is you go through guidelines application, for instance here in chapter two and elsewhere, uh, the guideline application is cumulative. You started with the 20, and it was a bank, you added two levels, and there was a firearm possessed, you've added the five levels. In other words, it's a cumulative uh, application as you go through. However, within a subset, for instance, we looked at weaponry a while ago. Well, you may have the guy that goes in, you know, loaded for bear, he has the gun, he has the knife, He's discharging the gun, he's using the knife, and it's like, whoa, now did I give a seven plus a five plus a four, whatever, I mean, you're adding all this up. It is not cumulative within a subset. Within a subset, if more than one is applicable, as would be that set of facts, you would give the highest of those that are applicable. If more than one is applicable, as would say always be the case if you discharge a firearm, obviously you possessed it if you discharged it, uh, you're not going to give the five for the possession and the seven for the discharge, you just give the higher or highest uh, as would be applicable if more than one uh, could be applied. We have a definition of loss that's the value of property taken, damaged, or destroyed. So depending upon what was taken, what was damaged, what was destroyed in this robbery, all that adds up and represents a loss figure. In our scenario at hand, we had uh, loss of uh, 18,000 dollars, that's more than 10,000 dollars, and picks up an additional offense level. And again, you'll notice that recovery doesn't make a difference. In other words, a guy, hey, I took 18,000, I'm going out the door, you got the die pack going off, this money's no good, I'm running. The defendant still has taken $18,000, even if recovered, or if restitution had been paid. Maybe they didn't never recovered it, but the defendant's paid full restitution. Still, there was that amount that was taken under our definition of loss. The concern that we have here is on the cross-reference. Suddenly, you know, this defendant who was operating at offense level 32. You know, if, if a victim was murdered in this, in this robbery, then we would cross-reference you. We'd say, well, that 32 number, we're not going to use that. We're going to cross-reference over to the guideline for first-degree murder, and the offense level we're going to use instead is going to be 43. So we've jumped the guy from a 32 to a 43. Now, the jury hasn't come back to make any finding that this guy was convicted of, of murder, because he's not convicted of murder. This guy's convicted of robbery. The maximum statutory penalty for armed robbery is 25 years. So the question is, is this going to be a guy whose sentence the commission feels is more appropriately down towards, say, one day of imprisonment, or whose sentence more appropriately is up around 25 years of imprisonment? 
And to make that determination, the commission has you look at a number of factors as to what occurred in this offense. And again, not looking at it beyond a reasonable doubt, but once you're applying these guidelines, looking at it at a preponderance of evidence standard as has typically been used in sentencing. And the commission, by sending you on a cross-reference, even though we cross-reference you to the murder guideline and we're using the 43 if that cross-reference occurs, this defendant still is not looking at what the penalty would be for murder, which is life. This defendant is still looking at a maximum of 25 years. Now, the 43 in the calculations, this guy's probably going to end up with a guideline range that's going to be in excess of 25 years, I dare say. But nonetheless, the maximum exposure of this defendant is 25 years. The statute will trump the guidelines. This is going to be one of the defendants who's going to get a sentence that's going to be right at 25 years. Now, the concern, of course, is does the commission think it's fair to bump this guy up closer to 25 years when he hasn't been convicted of the more serious offense of, of uh, murder? And I would have to say that, yes, the commission obviously has taken those things into consideration in formulating the guidelines in this fashion. Okay, now having completed your Chapter 2 calculations, coming up with uh, a number, and you notice we're still on our worksheet A on page uh, 48. We're about halfway down that worksheet. We have a 32 from our Chapter 2 calculations. But then we go to... In the uh, event that that is advantageous to their position. So, this is... Subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell, that is one of the initial topics that you will cover in civil procedure. Some of your professors may begin with subject matter jurisdiction. I begin with the next topic, which is personal jurisdiction. So I'm going to talk about that right now. Personal jurisdiction also relates to where can this lawsuit be brought. So we've talked about federal versus state court, a very important initial determination. But we haven't talked about geographically which federal court we're talking about. Are we talking about a federal court in Tennessee, Vermont, etc.? Where is this going to go? Personal jurisdiction is an important limitation on your choices in that regard. You can only bring this lawsuit in a court that would have jurisdiction over the defendant. So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the topic of the lawsuit, over the subject of the suit. But you also have to have jurisdiction over the defendant or the defendants, if there are many defendants. Personal jurisdiction rules lay that out. So, here we have a situation where there's a plaintiff from New York and a defendant from Texas. What courts might have jurisdiction over this dispute? Well, one easy one that you'll learn about is Texas. Because the defendant is from Texas, you can sue them in Texas for anything. I'm from Virginia. Anyone who has a legal dispute with me can come to Virginia and sue me here because I'm a citizen of Virginia. Again, you'll learn what it means to be a citizen of a place. You're not just a citizen of a place because you're physically located there. There's other things, subjective and objective, that go into that determination that you'll learn about. So, Texas 
courts could hear this case. They would have jurisdiction. Would New York courts have jurisdiction over this case? Well, the defendant's not a citizen of New York. The plaintiff is, as you'll learn, doesn't matter that the plaintiff is a citizen of the state in question. That's not going to render the defendant subject to jurisdiction there. Uh, that doesn't mean this case can't be litigated there. Under what circumstances might this case be litigated in New York and in a way that there will be jurisdiction over the defendant? If the car accident happened in New York, if the car accident happened in New York, then you can sue the defendant in New York regardless of where they're from. Same thing if we were talking about Wyoming. Can this case be brought in Wyoming? Well, not based on the citizenship of the defendant, but if the car accident occurred in Wyoming, then we don't have a problem. It can be litigated there. So personal jurisdiction is going to be based in part on citizenship, but mostly what you're going to be studying is the circumstances under which jurisdiction is based on the incident and the defendant's connection with the state through the dispute or through what happened that gave rise to the dispute, something we call specific jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction is something that is a very important initial determination that has to be made before you can select a court where you're going to litigate a case. Now, personal jurisdiction is not the end of the where. We're still dealing with this where question. Federal versus state, we've already determined that. Personal jurisdiction, I've given you some sense of that. There's another requirement, and this is called venue. Now, you would think we've done enough to figure this out. All right, I've got to federal court. Now I know I can go to Texas because the person's from Texas. That's not good enough. Why not? Because if we're in federal court, there are four districts in Texas. Texas has four federal districts. New York has four federal districts. California has four federal districts. Virginia has two federal districts. Some states only have one district, like Delaware, Maryland. So venue is based on congressionally enacted statutes, and that tells us which district among all of the 94 federal district courts we can use to bring this case. So I may have personal jurisdiction throughout Texas over this person, but I need to know which district to go to. We're talking about an individual defendant here who's from Texas, we would need to know which part of Texas he is from. Taking Virginia as an example, I live here in Charlottesville. This is in the Western District of Virginia. So if someone wants to sue me in federal court, there's citizenship in Virginia. So Virginia state courts and federal courts would have personal jurisdiction over me throughout Virginia. But if this person brought the lawsuit against me in Richmond... I'm 
about as real as they come. All my beats tailored by Joe. Maserati Rick in Detroit. Convertible bird in Miami. Graduated summa cum laude. Strip club made a tsunami. Carlton Hines with the ball game. Grateful Edmonds with the snowflakes. Craig Pettis in the M Town. Sal Magluta with the boat game. Falcone with the cocaine. Like Freeway Ricky with the plug game. Like Monster Cody in South Central. Larry Davis from Close Range. Um, I don't have an issue with Troy Ave. I think his music is mediocre, and he like tried to like portray this image that he was like making greater music than everybody in the city when he wasn't. You know, it was like a time like when Bobby Schmurder was the hottest person in the city. He was trying to say he was the best, trying to take the. You know, I was like, I had to like be the person to interrupt that. So I just feel like he's like a fraud rapper. Like he never was a drug dealer. Like his dude is just weird. You know what I mean? So. That's really it. It's no issues with Troy F. So what did you say that kind of got... Because he just released a diss song about you. So yeah, what did like you a, say Like a three-minute diss record. I think it was his best record ever. I, I actually liked the record. I played it 76 times. Um, what did I do? Um, I bothered him for five years. Like just on social media, just, you know, just calling him out on different things, you know what I mean? He likes to bully, like, little scrawny white people, but when it come to, you know, dudes this you know, he think to take him on, he falls back. So I, I think at this point he decided to attack me after five years of attacking him is because now I'm, like, on MTV and shit like that, and I have, like, a podcast that's jumping off tax season. So I feel like he probably just used that, like, oh, yeah, I know he ain't going to jump all the way out the window. But, you know, he's he's not too smart. Twitter fingers, how many times you going tweeting? I'm always on the fly, I guess you too scared to meet me. Hell no, I've confronted him, no. I've been in his his video shoots with Mano. This was last year, April, and I've been harassing him for five years. So he needs to stop it, you know. He knows, uh, you know, it's just it's some shit. He just, and you know that was some backed up shit for you to rap about a nigga that don't rap for three minutes. You know what I mean? Like, that was deep. My favorite line was, Cass beat you up in jail. <laughs> Guess what, y'all? Cash did beat me up in jail. But guess what? I beat Cash up three times before that. Um, he got me arrested. You know what I mean? I'm like, what the fuck do you mean, my nigga? Like, so what? I lost mad fights. Niggas telling you still don't want to fight me, though. Know what I mean?
Okay. They were shooting us up there. Hey, what the fuck are you waiting for? What the fuck are you doing, man? Are up there? Is this crazy up there? Is this crazy up there? is one of the most iconic rappers in hip-hop history. At only 15 years old, the Southside Chicago rapper took the rap game by storm after being one of the first people to really put Chicago drill music on the map. Chief Keef's demonic style of hip-hop was like nothing we've ever seen before and had everyone from the streets all the way to the suburbs anxiously awaiting for the next Chief Keef record to be released. But it wasn't just the sound of the music that created all this hype around Chief Keef and the Chicago drill scene. It was rather the actual lyrics that he was saying in his music. It was all authentic. Nobody even questioned it for a second. All it took was 30 seconds of a Chief Keef song and a music video to figure out that Sosa was about that life. Whether he did the dirt himself or was around people who did, Everyone knew that there wasn't any lies being told in his music, and Keefe and his affiliates have the rap sheet to prove it. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Chief Keefe. That's how fast you're going, one time. Oh, just a fast car, that's why I bought it. Chief Keefe's first documented run-in with the law happened at the age of 15 on January 27, 2011. Details are scarce on this arrest, but from what the charges say, a young Sosa was either caught at the trap house or in the process of selling from what was produced from the trap house. Whatever it was, Chief Keefe was detained in the act and was charged with manufacture and delivery of heroin near a school, public housing building, or park. Chief was charged with a Class X felony, but keep in mind, he was only 15 at the time, which obviously made him a minor. In Chicago, juvenile offenders are found to be delinquent of charges rather than guilty of the charges. Sosa was let out of jail, but sentenced to home confinement on the charge. The second arrest of Chief Keefe happened on December 2nd, 2011, almost a year after his first arrest. Sources say that the police responded to a call of shots fired in the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. 
When officers arrived, they spotted Chief Keefe walking out of the front door of his grandma's apartment complex in the 6100 block of South Michigan Avenue, holding a coat over his hands that were in front of his waistband. Officers tried to stop and question the chief, but instead of cooperating, Sosa dropped the coat, flashed a blue steel handgun, and sprinted through the vacant lot next door to the apartments. Several officers immediately gave chase to the fleeing chief, who allegedly would stop and turn towards the police and point his pistol at the officers. This caused the officers to pull out their weapons as well, and even though Sosa did not shoot at the officers, the officers shot at him multiple times, but missed. After shots were fired, Chief Keefe continued running for his life before other officers caught him a half a block away in an alley of the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. One officer claimed to have suffered multiple bruises in the act of trying to detain the chief. They also alleged that Chief Keefe ditched his pistol throughout the chase, but it was soon recovered moments later, completely loaded and ready to go. Chief Keefe was charged with four felonies for this incident, which included three counts of aggravated assault with a firearm on an officer and aggravated unlawful use of a weapon. They also charged the chief with a misdemeanor charge of resisting arrest. Sosa was held in the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center for a good while until the judge sentenced the chief to house arrest at his grandma's house. This next incident wasn't an arrest, but rather a pretty well-known investigation involving Chief Keefe about a murder of a rival rapper, Lil Jojo. For those of you who are unaware, Chief Keefe and the rest of GBE were going back and forth with a rival rapper named Lil Jojo. Just days before the tragic slang of Lil Jojo, a video went viral of one of Chief Keefe's good friends, Lil Reese, threatening to kill Lil Jojo after Jojo drove by their neighborhood, taunting them. Later that week, Jojo was killed while riding his bike. Chief Keefe took to Twitter the day after the incident, tweeting, It's sad because Jojo just wanted to be like us. Hashtag LMAO. Despite the clear taunting online, no charges were filed. It is possible that no charges were filed due to Chief Keefe claiming a hacker tweeted those tweets, but JoJo's brother begs to differ. Whatever the case may be, JoJo's murder is still unsolved to this day. After a few months of staying out of trouble, Chief Keefe was ordered back into court for a probation violation stemming from a previous gun conviction. Authorities say that Keefe went to a gun range for a music video shoot in New York. Chief Keefe apparently wasn't allowed to be anywhere near firearms as one of the conditions of his probation, so when the judge found out about this, he wasn't happy. The judge sentenced Keefe to 60 days in juvenile detention. At the sentencing, Chief Keefe said to the judge, I'm a very good-hearted person, and I'm sorry for anything I've done wrong. Give me a chance. And then, three months after his last sentencing, Chief Keefe was arrested yet again in Atlanta for disorderly conduct after a security guard at Lay Meridian Atlanta Perimeter Hotel called 911 on the chief after claiming he was 
rolling. As I teach uh, joint ventures and brokering method, right? So just like me and you actually spoke about this. Yeah. So what I do is. That's the is, car out there, the Carvette. Right, that thing going to go. Yours. That thing, that's hotcakes. That's yours. So, you know, I meant, you to, bring you, I meant to bring you a keychain. So I normally get this keychain to people who get into the, the brokering or joint venture thing with no me. More. Just to make sure you know you're part of the click now. I was going. like a Rockefeller chain. Is that, boy? Like a chain. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, we good. I like that. Yo, we got to get them. We, get, <laughs> we got to get them. Everybody who got a chain on, they mess with Mitch. And Mitch got the whips going Straight crazy. Like All right, so long story short. So I get into joint ventures with people, and I broker with other people who have rental car agencies. Mm -hmm. So you have Matty J on here. We do this together as well. So he has cars that I use in my network as well and rent out as my own. How do you do this? You learn the game, you master it, you learn the ins and outs of it, then you can talk the talk, also walk the walk, so you know what you're doing if something happens, right? Mm -hmm. So if something happens to this car, I know exactly what to do because I've been running it for five years. So if I take yours, I know exactly what to do as well. I know the terminology to say, I know the, the contracts to have, I know the mechanics to know, I know the tire people, I know everything I need to know. So if I go tell you what I do, mm -hmm. what you gonna do? You gonna be like, I'm giving my keys to Mitch. Sure, I'm gonna let him run it. If, if me and you broker a deal, um, I know what you want minimum per day. I charge on top of that. We both making money, everybody's happy. If I got five years of clientele, why would you not? Why would you wanna sit there and build up your own clientele? You can just give it to me and go work and go have a, a, a dope podcast coming here and you can go have to worry about the cars because Mitch worried about it because he got a whole staff and a whole lot out by the airport that can have as many cars as you need. You feel wow. what I'm saying? Let me ask you real quick. With this network of cars, mm -hmm. what do you think, and not in your, in your personal pockets, but what's like some of your revenue per month from this car rental business? Me, uh, now I'm doing $200,000 months, and it's getting pretty consistent. So uh, on the average, I average like about 120000 and that's what my CPA says. Mm. That's what the revenue is looking like, and that's just because uh, I'm getting a lot of bookings. Like, I don't just have the car sitting there picking up cobwebs. We get creative. We get creative. We go to golf courses. We hand out pamphlets. We make it make sense. Y'all doing the work. Man, we doing tours. We doing rental, uh, luxury rental car tours. I get deals with the, uh, the valet companies in front of the W, leave them parked in front of the W, and then let them know, hey, look, if you tell them the, they can drive this for with no deposit, how do they drive with no deposit? I'm be in the front seat with them. I let them get in it, charge them 150. We take a tour around 400 in a Lambo. Then they get in the rentals. They passing out. Oh, when I came to the W in Atlanta, this dude, Mitch, he had me with the Lamborghini and the I-8. Man, come on, bro. I get creative. All right. So that, that I, I wanted to, like, give people, like, where we are today. But now I got to take them back how we started. Okay. I got I to gotta take them way back. Because he keeps telling people he worked for me. And he, Oh, yeah, I work, work for, for this me. guy. This is like my low-key, my ex-boss. <laughs> this is fire. <laughs> hey, and I'm on my boy podcast going crazy. That's okay, weird. Okay, walk, walk me through where you were. Okay, so um, clearly I used to work for this guy, but when I worked for him, <laughs> I, I had a nine-to-five as well. So Working I, where? I used to work for the city of Atlanta. I used to do corrections. Mm. And I could fight, so I used to teach the defensive tactics as well. Mm. So I teach people how to shoot. And I teach you how to fight, and I was in the jail, and I was like miserable. Like I'm getting a lot of mental wear and tear because mm. you see a lot of horrible truths when you work in a jail, man. Mm. So I was working 16 hour shifts, like they do mandatory voluntary overtime. So I'm working 16 hour shifts, 
Um, what were some of the things that really affected you walking, like just working there? Working in the jail, just seeing like how how many of our people are there, and they basically remind you of like slavery didn't end for real. Like this is where it is because you get to see that they got these work details that they put the inmates on, and they go out on the street and they do things. They go to the cities and they be- go to the bando houses and fix them up, trim the hedges. They go out on the side of the highway, pick up the trash. They go out and clean out underneath the pathways where the homeless people stay, yep. and they clean all that stuff out. They're doing work, literally, for free. You get what I'm saying? So you can kind of see how the concept of slavery never ended. It's actually, we just numb to it because we don't think about where the people actually go when they go to jail. So I'm seeing that firsthand every day. It's tearing me up, and I'm a thinker. So I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. Right. Like, you know, it's inhumane anyway. Nobody should really be in jail. It's not even rehabilitative. They're not getting rehab when they yeah. go there. They're just going there for a second and just living in a horrible situation. Mm. You get what I mean? And then you get to where I was working at, like they can't even take a shower every day. They got shower days. Just think about not being able as a grown adult, not being able to take showers when you want to. You gotta take when they tell you. You gotta eat when shower they tell you. Days. Yeah, it was crazy. It wasn't it was different. So me seeing that every day tore me up. And then I'm associated with police. Right. Now just working for corrections. Right, right. Which is beneficial to me now because I have my badge and when I get pulled over I can show it and I'll get a ticket. <laughs> but it's not beneficial to me when uh I'm associated with, with all the stuff like the Mike Brown mm-hmm. Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin stuff. That stuff happens and you're associated with police. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was dealing with a lot of mental battles. Yeah. So I, I was I was dying for a way to get out. But luckily, because I worked at the re- Engaging in solicitation or prostitution is a misdemeanor offense and punishable up to six months in Washoe County Jail and or a fine of $1,000. If you are charged with a solicitation, In northern Nevada, the effects can be devastating. The local newspaper prints your mugshot and also your name on their website and also in their public print. We here at the Las Vegas Defense Group fight very hard to keep that out of the newspapers, stopping that potential embarrassment of having your family, your friends, your neighbors, your boss, your colleagues see your picture and name in the newspaper with the charge and accusation of solicitation. They want the lab. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We want the lab. We want the lab. And, um... (laughs) So, I mean, this next part's gonna fucking kind of sound kind of bad. On my part. When you snitch? Oh, for sure I did. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going back to prison. Right. I'm not going back to prison. <laughs> okay? Fuck this Listen. Fuck these motherfuckers. Motherfuckers. Fuck these motherfuckers. You know what I mean? That's right. my attitude. Right. I'm not going back to prison for these motherfuckers that I don't even know. Right. You know what I mean? So they're like, we want the lab. We want the lab. I'm like, all right. So this dude's a mastermind, I told him. You know what I mean? This dude's the fucking mastermind. I threw Buddy under the bus. I'm sorry, Buddy. <laughs> if you ever watch this, I'm fucking sorry. His name is Buddy? No, his name's not Buddy. Oh, okay. I'm fucking sorry, dude. I apologize. But I wasn't going back to prison. I apologize. Yeah, my bad. Um, who was the... who? It wasn't the Secret Service, though. 
that grabbed you. It was no, the, this was the Miami Financial Crimes Unit. So it hadn't. I was like, "Is this federal?" That's the first thing I asked him. I was like, "Is this federal?" He's like, "No, it's not federal." I was like, "Okay, now I got some wiggle room." Then I knew I had some wiggle room. You know what I mean? Because if it's federal, you're fucking, you're done. They're just going to indict you, and then you can cooperate. And, and you're still you, going to prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're no still way. going to prison. Yeah, so if it was federal, you I was gonna be like, you know what? Let's go right now. Right. Because it would have done me no good to fucking to do anything. But it was it was local. So I knew I had some wiggle room. Mm. You know, you can, you, can, you can work with them. So I gave him the dude's fucking address. <clears throat> and then the dude fucking calls me while they're there. All this is happening. This this is just they just just the wrong fucking day, dude. Yeah. The wrong day. The dude calls me because we were waiting on the embosser to come in, and I was because the lab was at his house. Because I was like, that's what I told the dude. I was like, dude, I'm not setting all this shit up. I got my fucking probation officer comes over here. Right. She's right. gonna come in here and see what, ask me questions about all this equipment. I'm not even supposed to have a fucking laptop. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Fuck. Right. So we had all this shit set up at his house. He calls me while they're there. I had to put it on a fucking speakerphone. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking to me. And he's like, you know, did it show up? I'm like, yeah, it's here. He's like, uh, come drop it off now. I'm like, ah, I can't really do that. And they're like, they're both like, <laughs> fuck. I'm like, all right, where do you want to meet at? So he's had me meet, meet him at this fucking, uh, I don't remember what it was, like a Publix or something like that. And he's like, oh, we got we to gotta mic you up. We got to mic you up. I'm like, what the fuck are we talking about like listen i'm not wearing a wire man what the fuck are you guys talking about you know what i mean like he's like no no no, it's not like the movies you know what i mean they brought me like a fucking pager and the pager was like a listening device it was like a microphone and i had to fucking wear it in my pocket when i went and dropped the fucking the thing off to him yeah so i drive so i meet the dude at Publix. i dropped the fucking um i dropped this is this whole story is wild i dropped the fucking i dropped the um the thing off with him I wear the fucking listening device. Once again, dude, I'm sorry. I wear the fucking listening device. You know what I mean? I'm fucking such a piece of shit for this, dude. I, I, I'm 100%, but I'm not going back to prison. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Fuck that. I'm not going back to prison. Right. It is what it is, dude. I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, I had to wear the listening device on Buddy and then fucking... Meet at Publix. Meet at Publix. I dropped it off. I met with him. Uh, I drove somewhere, and then one of the one of the two dudes that were there met me there. They followed um, him to his house, and then called in fucking reinforcements, and they fucking raided his house and found all the equipment, everything. Mm. They found all the equipment. So he was like, um, "He's like, all right. He's like, you can go." The dude at the thing. He's like, "You can go." I was like, all right. He lets you walk. He let me walk. But he's like, we'll be in contact with you. And he's like, you know, we have to we have to report this to your probation officer. We have to. It's by law. We have to. Right. So I was like, well, all right, fuck. I'm on I'm running. You know what I mean? Because now I got I got a little while you, to get you, to my back to my fucking apartment, pack a bag, and get the fuck out of Dodge. You know what I mean? You're gonna get a probation violation. One thousand percent I'm gonna get a probation definitely violation. Go back to yeah. Prison. So yeah. even if definitely the state says even if the state says we won't, okay, we're not going to charge him. I was federal engaging would be in like, illegal activity, which is clearly a fucking yeah. violation of the rules yeah. of my fucking conduct, my probation. You know? Yeah, doesn't matter. Clearly, if you're they don't want me fucking printing credit cards. You know what I mean? Yeah. In my apartment. or attempting or 
hand they can they can yeah. they're gonna they're gonna violate you for any, something like that they're gonna violate you for anything right. yeah anything yeah so I, I take off i go back to my 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 little apartment i had um and at this time i we hadn't even started making any money yet at this time like i was still fucking working at the warehouse i still really didn't have shit i mean i had a little bit of money because i was doing um we were making cards so i was going out and doing a little bit of store carding and shit you know what I mean? Just to have a few dollars yeah. here and there. Cause mm-hmm. I was, I was doing bad, dude. Right, I was right. doing fucking bad. I went, I went up to the used car lot at the end, at the end of the street and got a fucking old, uh, 2003 Cadillac fucking, uh, 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 DHS or some shit like that. I mean, it was fucked. It wasn't, you know, my former glory, but I was trying to get back to my former glory. You know what I mean? You ever see that fucking movie Kingpin? Whatever on the highway, the camera's at the gas station, the camera's in front of every goddamn person's house in the whole fucking country. I mean, it's just like so, like the dude who did that, I don't know what the issue or the tension was or whatever, but I hope it was worth it because that, like, this is the stupidest dummy mission crime you could ever imagine. I mean, period, in United States, like, there's no big city you can go to where there is not cameras every fucking corner so it's like it's retarded now and they even have like i know in compton they have like sonar detectors that let you know what like what area a bullet even Mm. came from i heard about that in chicago that shit is crazy where somebody gets shot they can like triangulate exactly yeah, where the noise exactly came from, from so here. they can solo, you know, single it out, which is pretty unbelievable. One other thing I want to say about the Anne Marie thing, though, is there's a lot of people pointing out the hypocrisy about this because obviously the girls on Twitter are like, yes, yeah, sis, shoot him, ha. But then, like, think about how different the reaction was when our boy Tory Lanez allegedly shot Meg Thee Stallion in the foot. You know, they treat him like a fucking war criminal. They won't put him on playlists and stuff. I mean, does seem a little hypocritical here. That is very hypocritical. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. I mean, look, is the, is the guy alive? Oh, uh, yeah, I think he's all right. I mean, he, he ain't got no problem with it. Well, that's the question, is if he'll snitch. He's not going to snitch. If your girl shot you in the head, would you snitch? It depends on, is it like my girl girl or is it my girl girl? I mean, either way. Pop that bitch back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, YouTube, thank you very much for tuning in with us. Like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see y'all real, real soon. Appreciate you. Rape is defined as having non-consensual intercourse with another person accomplished by means of force or threats. Intercourse is defined as any penetration, no matter how slight. Now, when we think of rape, we typically think of a situation where you hold a gun to somebody's head or you literally force them down to the ground and force them to submit to sex. And certainly that is an example of rape. But rape can also be charged in a situation where you have sex with somebody who's unconscious. So suppose you go on a date with a, with a woman and you bring her back to your place and you guys are making out and, and you guys are drunk and, and she passes out. And uh, once she passes out drunk, you take her clothes off and have sex with her, you can be charged with rape because she was not awake and alert and able to give consent. And we see many people charged with rape in just that situation. Now, 
Rape is a felony. If you're convicted, you could face up to eight years in state prison. More if you have a prior record or if there's injury caused to the victim. And it would make you a registered sex offender for life. So the consequences of being convicted of rape are really devastating. That said, we find that a lot of innocent people get wrongly accused of rape. And this happens really for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of false accusations. A lot of times the accuser will will make accusations out of anger or jealousy or spite. We've seen situations where a guy was dating a young lady and uh, she wanted to take the relationship further and she wanted to be exclusive and he didn't want to do that and, and wasn't giving her the attention she was seeking. And she felt insulted and she felt hurt and made false accusations out of spite to get him in trouble. And situations like that are actually very common. We also find a lot of times the accuser will make a false accusation of rape uh, in order to get attention. A lot of times the accuser has mental health issues. The accuser is a a narcissist. uh, And the accuser likes the idea that they're so desirable that other people are desperate to have sex with them and uh, desperate enough to commit rape. And so they imagine things and they make false accusations to try to create this reality as part of their mental pathology. We see this very commonly. Also, a lot of accusations of rape arise out of a misunderstanding. So it may be a situation where you went out with someone and you guys were making out and there was foreplay and you ultimately had sex with the person But later the person says, oh, I didn't really want to do it, but I I was scared to speak up. I was scared to say no. It was against my will. But if that person didn't communicate that to you, and based on the circumstances, you honestly and reasonably believed that they were into it and that it was consensual, then that's really not a rape. Here at Shouse Law Group, we've had a great deal of success over the years in defending clients who were falsely accused of rape and date rape. We had a case recently where a young man was accused of raping a young lady that he was dating. And the family came to me right after the accusation was made and even before charges were filed. And I was able to go to the DA before the DA filed charges and say, listen, just wait on this a week. Let me do an investigation. And I sent my investigator to look at the background of this young lady who made the accusation. And we found a restraining order a couple years earlier that she had gotten on a previous boyfriend. And we got the declaration and we looked at it. And she made an accusation of rape against this other person that was almost identical to what she was accusing my client of doing. And I brought this to the DA and I said, look, this this young lady is a serial victim. She accuses all her boyfriends of the same thing. And when the DA looked at that, she decided not to file any charges. So this case really underscores the critical importance of 
doing an independent investigation and being proactive anytime there's an accusation uh, of rape or sexual assault against one of our clients. If you or a loved one is in a situation like this where you're being accused of rape, investigated for rape, charged with rape, we invite you to contact us here at Shouse Law Group. The sooner we get involved, the sooner we investigate, the sooner we work up the defense, the more effective we can be.